1: on today's show. Do students need homework? They're heading back to school this week. Rage and politics. The two have come together in Canada and it's a bit of a frothy mix. How do we turn down the temperature? And addressing athlete abuse in Canadian sports, still so much talk about what's going on around sports in this country. We haven't seemed to come up with an answer. Why not? Now, of a discussion on the text line already about this homework thing. And I think... You know, it depends. Maybe it's circumstantial. We'll we'll speak to the expert in a second, but here's a good one. Doug says, "Um, Jay, I recently retired after teaching high school math for 31 years. My experience found that developing math skills was like any other skill. It requires repetition and practice. That cannot be facilitated only in the classroom. And I think that makes really good sense to me, Doug. Um, The more time that you spend on it and the more work that you do on it, the better off you're going to be. The question is, can it be done within the classroom, or do you need to, do we need to be making sure the kids are spending, I mean, there's all kinds of different rules, there's all kinds of different guidelines, right? Um, it's an age-old question. Let's find out. We're going to chat with Dr. Jacqueline Layton, who's a professor in the Faculty of Education and Educational Psychology Department at the University of Alberta. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us.
0: Good morning. Thank you for having me on.
1: It is an age-old question, and I'm wondering if it's even a yes or no, I mean, is to say is homework a good thing can you possibly say yes it is a good thing or no it's not a good thing or is there a lot of gray area there?
0: Well there's always a gray area but I would say I would argue that based on the research there is more good coming from doing homework than not.
1: Okay what what are you seeing in the research? What are they telling? What are the pros to having a kid doing homework?
0: Well it actually is different depending on whether you're looking at elementary school children versus junior high and high school kids. So There was a really good uh, meta-analytic study done in 2006 looking at a whole bunch of different studies uh, between doing homework, looking at the relationship between actually doing homework and academic performance. And what these researchers found is that the relationship, the association between homework time and academic performance was actually quite weak at the elementary school grades, but stronger in the secondary school grades. But... The thing is, is that even when kids at the elementary school grades are doing homework, they may not necessarily be performing better in terms of measured grades in classroom tests, but they're learning a lot of really important skills such as personal responsibility, time management, study habits, etc.
1: That, that seems to make sense in terms of, like you say, the studying habits are going to be better developed as a kid gets older. Their ability to self-direct is going to be better as they get older. So it, it makes sense to me that as you get into older grades, junior high and high school, the benefits of working at home are going to be far better than they would be in a grade school kid.
0: Well, correct. But the thing is so you have to remember is that study habits don't just appear overnight. Right. So if you want to have junior high and high school kids who know how to be able to spend time doing homework, where are they going to learn that and when? So at the elementary school grades, even doing 10 minutes, 20 minutes of homework a night can help students understand that they have to make priority for school. They want to think about school. They want to be able to begin to identify the things that they are understanding, not understanding, and actually spend some special time just focusing in on school. That helps them develop those good habits that then, in junior high and high school, will lead to the good grades.
1: Um. So is it, I know in some cases the the recommendation has been, even if you don't have an assignment to finish or an essay to write or whatever the case may be, sit down and review. I mean, is it something like building a routine and building a habit around Doing some kind of homework is that important in a younger kid
0: absolutely so building routines is essentially structure kids do really well with structure structure is what allows us to do things even when we don't want to do it and so when you began to teach children as as young as kindergarten in grade 1 grade 2 to spend time after dinner even 10 minutes reviewing what they've done, reading, reading so important yeah. in the elementary school grades, and actually just spending time on school. It actually helps the child learn that association between what is going on in school and how that can continue in the home.
1: Makes good sense to me. Hey, I wanted to ask you, I was reading uh, some of your background, and I know you've done a lot of work on this, and it's interesting. And One of my kids um, dealt with this. A straight-A student, straight-A student, knocked it out of the park every single year, but had... Horrible anxiety around testing. It drove her nuts, made her crazy. Um, it, it, when you that test anxiety is that something that I know you've worked on? Is that something you see a lot of?
0: Yeah, and especially with very high achieving students because they understand that performance matters, right? So they're willing to put in the time and do the the hard work to to uh, score straight A's on tests. But let's be honest, things get more difficult because you want to challenge yourself a yeah. lot more. So when kids are performing really well, they need to be pushing those limits. And for kids who, are, who tend to be, you know, they, they are pushing the limit on perfectionist behavior, which can be actually a negative, and, and parents need to really look out for that they can begin to uh, associate testing with the possibility of not doing well. And because they are accustomed to doing well, because they, have, they really enjoy that reward of doing well, they enjoy learning, but they also enjoy performing, it can become a really stress-inducing um, endeavor to actually do tests. <laughs>
1: So what do you do in that situation, doctor? Because you don't want to say to the kid, hey, it's okay, don't worry, you don't need to do well at school or do as well. I mean, you want to relieve that pressure, but at the same time recognize the fact that, you know, what they're doing is is really beneficial for them.
0: Right, and you're you're quite right that you don't want to say, hey, you know, don't worry about it, especially if it's a high-achieving student. But at the same time, you want to allow that student to realize that not always achieving straight A's uh, you want to let them know that that's that's okay. That sometimes in the process of learning new skills, of trying new things, of beginning to um, acquire the expertise in a new domain, that you're not always going to get the highest grade or even uh, at the top grade. The important thing is is to be able to be practicing those skills, and that's where homework comes in. That is where all those good habits. Of learning to learn on your own coming to play you know you know what is a really good um, analogy uh, to homework is sports performance so athletes always go they have to be able to practice the skills that they're learning in order to really be um, excellent at what they do I mean I always like to think of Steph Curry for the Golden State Warriors Mm -hmm. I mean he is an excellent performer but he also is one of the hardest working athletes out there so kids To be able to learn how to um, conquer test anxiety and even fear of failure, it's important to let them know that sometimes they're going to fail. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to be disappointed with the grades that they get. But very importantly, homework, and other important study habits, give them the tools to be able to do better, learn those skills, practice those skills, and then perform better once another test comes around.
1: You make such a good point. I mean, success doesn't happen by accident. When you see somebody like Steph Curry, there is a tremendous, just thousands and thousands and thousands of hours that went into that on top of the God-given ability. So you make a good point that, yeah, it, it, it's going to take some work and you're going to fail, but... Uh, just keep plugging. It's a good message, I think.
0: Absolutely. And the thing is, is that you're quite right. I mean, kids, they're going to have different levels of ability. But the important thing is, is that at kids at all levels of ability can actually take some agency in, in terms of what they do to try and perform better within whatever area that, that really matters to them. And this is where I think a really important conversation between parents and kids can happen. What matters to you? What are your goals? Yeah. What's, what's important? Because we, we need to devote time to things that are important, and we also need to be honest about the things that are not important. And if parents aren't prioritizing academics for kids, well, kids are going to internalize that as well. So these are conversations that are not just about children. It's about children and parents. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Great discussion. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... Can I have a conversation here? Pick up on a conversation we sort of have been having on and off throughout the week, and uh, not about a particular incident, but uh, I guess the incident sort of pushed the conversation back, talking about what happened with Christian Freeland and Grand Prairie, but we've talked about it before. Many, many, many times. And that is the level of discourse in our country, in our province, when it comes to politics right now. I mean, you can, we can talk about causes and effects and all the rest as long as we want, but I don't think anybody can deny we're at a place right now where we're so divided and so at each other's throats that the anger, the anger is, uh, I don't know if it's higher than it's ever been before. Certainly that I can remember. I don't know how widespread it is, but that's the conversation we're going to have. We're going to talk with Dr. Jared Wesley, who is a lead researcher in common ground politics and a political science professor at the University of Alberta. Uh, Dr. Wesley, thanks for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Good morning. You know, it's a conversation that I think is important to have. I mean, I don't think there's a problem with anger and frustration in politics. I mean, that's as democratic as anything else. You're going to have winners, you're going to have losers, but it's what we do with that anger and that frustration and the way we act out on it. That's, I mean, the anger's always been there, and that's part of the process, right?
2: I mean, anger might be a strong term. I think there's always been conflict in politics. I mean, elections are designed so that there are clear choices and options on the ballot, and people get it a choice between those options, and oftentimes our elections are about, you know, parties or candidates contrasting themselves to each other, and oftentimes that, that takes on a really negative connotation. But but you're right, um, in recent years, both here in Canada and south of the border, we have started to see the rhetoric um, and the behavior take some worrying turns away from what we would call, you know, normal democratic discourse yeah. into some pretty dangerous and violent um violent approaches right
1: yeah dr wesley is it i mean the the, one of the differences to me is okay we, we debating policy um positions all those sorts of things that's 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 great that's the way that it's supposed to work but it seems like we've taken a step beyond that and now that's not enough now it is literally attack and destroy the opponent their character their everything just rip them to pieces it's not about political differences now we're making enemies out of our political opponents
2: Well, that's right. And and you basically paraphrased what um, what Michael Ignatieff wrote uh, almost a decade ago when he was at Harvard University before he was or just after, I guess, he he, he left uh, Canadian politics as liberal leader. And he wrote about. Some worrying signs in the United States, where he said uh, people have stopped treating uh, their opponents as adversaries to be beat at the ballot box or to be, you know, debated, um, you know, through through reason and logic, and started treating them as enemies to be vanquished. Right? Mm-hmm. And we start to see, you know, terminology and rhetoric like uh, like. And you know, we've war rooms have always been around, and the ground war and the air war have always been around in terms of in terms of elections. But we have started seeing people. Take nooses to rallies we 've started you know hearing people talk about democratically elected governments as being traitorous or you know or or the prime minister or premier being a dictator, which we all know is not not the case but that that inflamed rhetoric um, you know skims along the surface for a lot of us to kind of roll over, roll our eyes, but for some people it 's actually a, a big trigger and it validates what they see as being an unfair system and it provides them with a target for political violence and harassment.
1: I think that's such an important point, Doctor. You know, it it starts with villainizing your opponent, and then it spreads to the system itself, and you start to see the erosion of democracy itself. Some of the norms, some of the institutions. I mean, just take a look at what's going on. We're going to we're going to fire the AHS board. We're going to fire the College of Physicians and Surgeons. We're going to fire the Bank of Canada Governor. We're going to. It's just some of the norms, some of the standards, some of the guardrails that are put in to make a democratic system function no longer apply. We're we're willing to run roughshod over all of that just for political gain.
2: Well, and the most important democratic norm, I think, for generations here in Canada, we've kind of taken for granted is what's known as loser's consent. Right? Right. So if if you lose an election um, in previous decades, we would have expected you not only to recognize that the election, you lost the election, but also to wish the the victor good luck. I remember not too long ago we'd hear you know people who who would lose the premiership or the prime ministership saying we must now rally behind yes. yep. this prime minister because they're they're here to, to on behalf of our country. But now we're seeing you know people questioning whether mail in ballots uh, were counted or not counted in the last federal election, and I think a, a, what. People miss too is all of this discussion around you know um, a sovereignty act that would allow governments one government to choose which of the other government's laws it's going to listen to or not listen to that's also part of this decline in losers consent it's the idea that you're not going to recognize your opponents as legitimate whatsoever uh and you're 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 just you know again you're contributing to this decline in democratic
1: discourse the question I always ask when we have this discussion on the show is, where does it start? Is it because politicians stoke the anger and use it? I mean, it's a great motivator in in your base. It's fantastic. You can make a lot of headway with that anger. So does it start with them stoking it and building on it? Or is it because the populace is so angry and so frustrated that politicians are merely tapping into that and reflecting the tone of the country?
2: Well, I think it's a vicious cycle to, to a certain extent. I mean, there's always been people that are alienated in our political system. Um, and sometimes those folks, you know, amongst themselves develop some resentment to the, the ruling class or the elites in some way. But it's the activation of those feelings and directing it towards, you know, democratic institutions and yeah. directing it towards specific individuals in a way that incites um, hatred in in some cases and violence in others that that makes that rage style of politics, you know, as you said, attractive for, for developing small corners of support to win a, a party nomination or to win a party leadership. Um, but it makes it even more difficult for those folks to, to, to deal with that rage once they attain office, right? And we've seen that happen in the United States with, with Donald Trump. He he wasn't able to control <laughs> the control of those right. folks. Um and the worry is that we if we have some anti establishment uh populist figures here in alberta and federally that gain control of those governments will they be able to 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 tame the dragon once they're in there and the jury's out on that
1: so where do we go i mean that, i guess that's the question you can i mean like you say you can look at the united states and you can whether you agree with whatever side of the aisle or not you can you cannot say that that democracy is in good shape it, it, it's been absolutely beaten down um and i don't think anybody wants to see that happen in canada so how do we end this where does it start is it the voters Is it- it the politicians? Is it the media? I mean, who needs to take responsibility? All of the above.
2: I think it's all of the above, but a lot of there are a lot more citizens than there are <laughs> people yeah, in the yeah. media and politicians. Let's talk to them for just a second. I mean, the first thing to recognize is that that most Albertans and most Canadians view themselves as being centrist, right? And most of them, from from our research don't want to think about politics and don't want to have to think about politics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's my my biggest worry is that those those centrists are now disengaging from politics because they think it's too dirty. They're not going to run for office. They're not going to support a candidate. And they're not going to speak out when they see this kind of what we call tribalistic behavior. And that's my second piece of advice for citizens is to recognize when politicians are engaging in this type of um, enemy, us versus them rhetoric using absolutist language like, uh, never never vote conservative or all conservatives are this way or all progressives are that way or using loaded terminology like communists or fascists. Um, certainly there are tendencies out there that political scientists will label communist or fascist, but they're pretty few and far between. What we need to do as citizens, because politicians are rational actors, Shay. You've talked about Absolutely. this quite a bit on your show, right? They respond to to what will, what will win them elections. Most of them do that way. Uh, most of them behave that way. So as citizens, until we start calling this out, Um, and and actually, as we've seen in in Alberta recently, calling up MLAs and saying, I don't like that behavior. I don't like this new policy. I want you to switch it, which has actually been quite effective. Until until citizens start reacting that way and providing disincentives for this kind of tribalistic behavior, we're going to be locked in this cycle for a while.
1: Yeah, and we all suffer for that, I think. Uh, Dr. Wesley, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for having this important conversation. Yeah, you bet. Thank you, sir. Dr. Yep. Jared Wesley, the lead researcher, common ground politics, political science professor at University of Alberta. Lots of talk in our country recently about sports, athletes, how we handle Misconduct and abuse and all the rest of those things in our country. And it all, the discussion all started, of course, with the Hockey Canada situation, which came up again yesterday. The Prime Minister was asked about it because, um, earlier this week, uh, Hockey Canada's board of directors put out a statement saying we're, we're going to continue to support our president and our chief executive officer, Scott Smith and his team, despite many, many people, Sheldon Kennedy among them calling for a complete and total overhaul of that organization's leadership. The Prime Minister saying that, um, it's fairly clear that both the government and Canadians in general have lost confidence in the leadership at Hockey Canada. And the longer it takes for Hockey Canada to realize that, the more difficulties they are going to face. I think he's right. I think um, a complete redo and a complete start over with Hockey Canada is the only way uh, that that organization moves forward. But it's not just Hockey Canada. There's this has always been a discussion, as we've talked about, in terms of, uh, you know, you look at what happened with Gymnastics Canada not long ago because of abusive athletes within that program. I mean, this has gone on and on and on for years, and we've really failed to come to some sort of a place where everybody feels comfortable with where we are and what we're doing around it. But maybe we're moving in that direction. Maybe not. Let's find out. We're going to chat with Dr. McIntosh Ross, who's an assistant professor of sociocultural kinesiology at Western University. Uh, Dr. Ross, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's just start with the, the newest move made by the government in this situation, which is to create a new office. It's the Office of the Sport Integrity Integrity Commissioner. Uh, they they'd say it'll be up and running within a few months, so they're not wasting any time on it. Uh, what do you know about this office? What will be the focus of this new office? So the, the,
3: the office will basically uh, hear all of these abuse complaints um, and provide some kind of um, suggestion for a remedy um, in terms of, you know, dismissing people or um, what have you. But the the big problem with the office um, is that it still falls under the umbrella of Sport Canada. It's being presented to the public as something uh, in addition to uh, Sport Canada that's going to provide safeguards for athletes, um, but it doesn't it doesn't really feel that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're they're going to be under the umbrella of the Sport Dispute Resolution Centre of Canada, which is funded by Sport Canada. So they're all still within the same kind of universe here uh, using uh, Sport Canada money. Uh, And it's hard to to understand how they could possibly believe uh, in a serious way that Sport Canada, the organization that's been at the helm for all of this, um, when all of these abuse allegations are coming out, is going to be the one to, to fix everything. Uh, and that that's the exact same argument for the Hockey Canada um, right? The CEO and all of that. Uh, if you were the one who was in charge when it happened, it probably can't be you that fixes it.
1: Well, that's the whole question. You need that independence. I mean, I mean, if you want to draw, we've been talking about this for years when it comes to the military. We've been talking about this for years when it comes to sport. You cannot have um, basically a self-policing organization. So this doesn't have the independence that you think is required, this new office, because like you say, it's still wrapped up in the same bureaucracy, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's going to be, there's too much already done um, in in terms of, uh, you know, Sport Canada having the opportunity to make some kind of change over the last five years or so, yeah, uh, and just not doing it, um, and, and openly admitting in the Hockey Canada situation that they they really didn't have a way to check to see if if third party investigations were occurring, if a reporting structure was being followed. All those things are are beyond their their mechanisms for compliance. So if they if and that's really ugly. Like that's that's just poor governance. Um, and if that's the case, there, there has to be something more. And, and I agree with Global Athlete uh, and Rob Kohler um, and others uh, who say that there has to be more, it has to be, you know, a, a judicial inquiry, a third party, an independent, uh, and independent, and can really delve into what's going on here and not only try to uh, provide a remedy for people who have already suffered abuse, but try to prevent it going forward. Try to have the systemic changes we yeah. need to make sure that this isn't just going to happen again in another decade.
1: So so, so, what do you create? What do you, I mean, in terms of what is the perfect independent third party that isn't beholden to any of the special interests involved here? I mean, how do you go about creating something like that?
3: I, I think it has to to be situated within the courts. I don't think it can be something that has anything to do with sport canada um even even parliamentary uh inquiries they're they just don't have the bite that a judicial inquiry has like judicial inquiries can call witnesses they can make people come um and that's what we need we need the full weight of the law behind this because these are these allegations are crimes there's crimes occurring um, and it's just not enough to have some kind of internal mechanism, although that might be part of yeah. the solution to, to sort through all of this stuff um, and start to, to get a record of, of what's happening. But they're not going to be the ones that are capable of, of actually fixing the problem.
1: And is that the fix, Doctor? I mean, we talk about so many other things. We just, you know, the the latest news about the Prime Minister saying they have to completely change the leadership structure within Hockey Canada, um, all of those sorts of things and the other things that have been mentioned. But does it come down to a way this can be dealt with independently? Is that sort of the initial starting point to try and resolve all of these issues in all of these different areas of sport?
3: I think that's where it begins. uh, And we have to actually commit ourselves to having an independent process. In order to know what that looks like exactly, who's going to be involved, um, what their powers will be, uh, those kinds of things can't start to unfold until we we actually say, okay, we're going to do this. Uh, and, and I spoke with with the office, um, or not the office, but the the sports minister's office. Uh, and, and basically, I was told that you know we think that that the sport integrity commissioner will be uh, you know a sufficient way to address all of these allegations and, and move forward and uh, make sure people are protected. Yeah. Um, so that, that's problematic to me, um, that that's what they think and what they believe. And, you know, when people are explicitly asking for independent inquiries, um, that they would still follow that
2: line.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems to, and like I say, it's happened in so many other areas that uh, it, it seems to make good sense. We'll see if we can get there, though. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for listening today. If you hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.